we're going to see today that even Old Testament believers partook of the same spiritual nourishment that we do through Christ, even though Christ had not yet come in the flesh and died on the cross. We're going to give our, our careful attention today to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. First of all, a brief summary of the context. The Lord is leading his redeemed people in the wilderness. The Lord was bringing his people through a series of tests, and each one was designed to teach them to trust him regardless of the circumstances. In every test, Israel failed. Each time, they complained. But each time, the Lord graciously and miraculously provided for them in a way that pointed them to the miracle of salvation through faith in the promised Messiah. So today, we're going to look at one of those tests. Let's pick it up at verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So notice with me what it clearly says. The Lord purposely led them to a place where he knew there would be no water. It was according to the commandment of the Lord that they came to this place of testing. The Lord was leading them by the pillar of cloud, which at night looked like a pillar of fire. Remember what the cloud is. It's called the glory cloud because it was the manifestation of the glorious presence, the fiery presence of the Lord, if you will. Our God is a consuming fire. This is the fire that Moses saw in the burning bush. The fire burned, but the bush did not burn. The Bible also tells us that in the glory cloud was the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, before he became a man. So the Lord is leading his redeemed people by the hand of his Son, by the hand of the promised Messiah. Christ was there with them in the wilderness. That's what it says in the New Testament. And the Lord led them to this place of testing where there was no water for them to drink. Once again, they had a choice to make. They had a choice to either trust the Lord, regardless of their circumstances, or they could complain. And you and I face that same choice in all of life's, life's tests. So let's see what happened. Verse 2, once again they failed. Therefore the people contended with Moses, and they said, Give us water that we may drink. That word contended is a strong word in the original language. It means to get vocally angry with somebody. They acted like Moses was responsible for leading them there and for providing water for them. Now, don't forget what these people have seen so far. They saw all those plagues that Moses did with that rod in his hand. Of course, it wasn't Moses who did all those plagues. It was the Lord. But they're acting like Moses is responsible. Just a few days ago, they had witnessed Moses throw a tree into bitter waters to miraculously sweeten them. Remember, they came to a place where the water was undrinkable, and Moses throws a tree to sweeten the waters, so they know he can do some miracles, and so now they're demanding that he do another miracle. What are you going to do now? There's no water here. Before the water was undrinkable, you made it drinkable, but now we don't have any water. So what are you going to do about it, Moses? They conveniently forgot that it was the Lord who was leading them. It was the Lord who was providing for them. Moses was simply directing the people to follow the cloud just like he was and to wait for the Lord's provision just like he was. And so here's Moses' response to them in verse 2. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? 
Why do you tempt the Lord by complaining against Moses and demanding that he give them water? The Bible says they were tempting the Lord. And we don't have to guess what that means. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, we are told exactly what it means to tempt the Lord. They tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? They tempted the Lord because they demanded that he do a miracle to prove that he was still with them, as if the Lord had not done enough already. What about the ten plagues? What about their amazing deliverance from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea? Just one chapter ago, he gave them manna, miracle bread from heaven. You can read about that in Exodus 16. And he gave them miracle bread to teach them to trust him to provide for all of their daily needs, all of their daily bread, everything necessary for body and soul. How many more miracles is it going to take to convince you that the Lord is with you? But here they are again complaining and demanding more proof. And Moses rebukes them. Why do you tempt the Lord? Once again, they have a choice to make. This is wrong, what they're doing. Moses is telling them this is wrong. You and I, we have a choice every day when we're confronted with what we're doing. Well, let's see what they did. Instead of repenting, they got angrier with Moses. This is what happens naturally when our wrongs are pointed out. We get defensive and angry, but God calls us to repent. Look at verse 3. They got angrier, and the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses, and they said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Again, they're acting like Moses is responsible for all of this. Moses brought them out of Egypt. Moses is not giving them water to drink. So they responded to the test by accusing Moses of having evil motives for bringing them out of Egypt. How insane is this? Sin is insane. Sin is irrational. It was at God's command that Moses did all those miracles, all those miraculous plagues to, to bring them out of Egypt. Did he do all that just to bring them out into the wilderness to kill them? If his motive was to kill them, he could have killed them in Egypt. Why go through all this and then bring them out into the wilderness? How insane sin truly is. It's irrational. But you and I are guilty, and you and I need to repent and ask God to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we're all guilty of this unbelief, this complaining. Lord, what have you done for me lately? Verse 4, here's how Moses responded. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. These people are so angry, they're actually threatening to kill me. This is how totally depraved the human heart is, apart from God's saving grace. How would you respond to these people if you were in Moses' shoes? Well, Moses did the right thing. He cried out to the Lord. I don't know what to do, Lord. Help. Verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. The elders were the representatives of the people, and more than likely they were the ones who were leading them in their complaining. Also, take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. The river is the Nile River. Remember Moses in Egypt? He struck the river and the river turned into blood. So this is the rod that Moses used to strike the river so it turned to blood. This is the rod that brought all the plagues upon Egypt. This is the rod of God's judgment. I wonder what the elders were thinking when they saw Moses and his rod taking them somewhere. Moses, where are we going? Verse 6, 
the Lord says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So look what we have here. God instructed Moses to go on ahead of the people and to take the elders to the rock in Horeb. This is beneath Mount Sinai. And notice what the Lord said. I will stand on the rock. This is none other than the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, before he became a man. Remember, it was the angel of the Lord who spoke to Moses. The angel of the Lord spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He spoke to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. He's speaking now, the Son of God, before he became a man. I will stand on the rock. Let us not forget who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. God the Father created all things through his eternal Son, by the eternal power of the Holy Spirit. The Son of God is that person of the Trinity through whom God speaks. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's why the Son of God is called the Word of God. So the Lord said, I will stand on the rock. The Son of God, before he became a man, stood on the rock. It doesn't say if he stood there in some visible form. Sometimes the angel of the Lord did appear in a visible human form. It doesn't say whether he stood there in some visible form or whether he stood there invisibly, but he stood there. And so we are to realize that he was there. We're also told that while he stood on the rock, Moses struck the rock and outflowed water for the people to drink. There's the gospel in a nutshell right there. The gospel in the Old Testament. The Israelites tempted the Lord and deserved to be struck with his wrath. And instead, the rock was struck and water was provided for a sinful people. A sinful, complaining, grumbling people. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We don't have to guess what this rock symbolized. We don't have to guess what the striking of this rock symbolized. In Scripture, the Lord himself is metaphorically called a rock. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Let me show this to you. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. The Lord is perfectly trustworthy and unchangeable as truth itself. That's why he's compared to a rock. Psalm 95, verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. In the Lord, our salvation is secure. He is our rock. And I'm sure you're familiar with the words of Matthew, 8, uh, Matthew 16, verses 16 through 18. Simon Peter made the confession that every true Christian makes. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, this truth to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We don't have to guess what the rock symbolized. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. 
No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the rock of our salvation. Let's see this very clearly now as we turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. We read these verses earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud. That's the glory cloud. All passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. That was manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink. That's the water that flowed from the rock. Keep reading. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This is my body, which was broken for you. That rock was Christ. The physical rock that was struck was a symbol of the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ prior to his incarnation. So when the physical rock was struck, it symbolized the striking of the spiritual rock who was struck for our transgressions. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. The word stricken means to be struck with a blow. The rock was struck to show God's people their need for salvation through faith in the promised Messiah who would be bruised to save his people from their sins. The miracle water that flowed from the smitten rock symbolize the spiritual water of eternal life that flows from the crucified and risen Savior to all believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you this as well. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Isaiah 12, verse 3. And then we'll look at Isaiah 44. Isaiah 12, verse 3. In the day of salvation, God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Turn to Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Remember, the Lord is the rock. In Jeremiah 2, 13, the Lord who is the rock referred to himself as the fountain of living waters. Living water is a metaphor of spiritual and eternal life. And remember what Jesus promised to give the Samaritan woman. John 4, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, if you only knew who was talking to you right now, the fountain of living waters in the flesh, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John 4, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That's a reference to the presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to guess. Turn to John 7, 37 and 38. John 7, verses 37 and 38. Jesus cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. The miracle water that flowed from the smitten rock symbolized the spiritual water of eternal life that flows 
from the crucified and risen Savior to all believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. The miracle water that flowed from the smitten rock was not just intended to provide physical water to quench their thirst. If that's all God intended to do, he could have easily led them to a place where there was water instead of leading them to a place where he would have to miraculously provide water for them. This is our problem. Our eyes are only upon our physical needs. And that's all we can do if we're unbelievers. We're spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. All we care about is getting our physical needs met. Who cares about the soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? We don't care. God wanted to show his people that salvation through the promised Messiah was exactly what they needed. And that was the greatest miracle. This is why the miracle water is called spiritual drink. It was a symbol of the spiritual water of eternal life for all who believed in the promised Messiah. And there were true believers in Israel. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says they all drank the same spiritual drink from the same spiritual rock. They all drank, but the large majority found nothing more than physical water for their dry and thirsty lips. It's about time we got water to drink. They failed to see beyond their physical needs to see their spiritual need for the Lord's grace. Did they not realize that they deserved God's wrath, and yet they got miracle water instead? All they cared about was their physical needs and the things of this world. Therefore, as soon as their thirst was quenched, you can bet they were ready to complain again when the next test came. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 5, right after it says they all drank. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Only true believers in Israel saw and tasted the Lord's miraculous grace that day. They saw the rod of God's judgment strike the rock and not them. The Lord himself stood on the rock and took their punishment. And so when they drank the refreshing water for their lips, their souls experienced the spiritual water of eternal life. They realized that, that the Lord is the fount of every blessing, physical and spiritual. True believers were thirsting for the living God that day. As David said in Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So true believers saw way more than just physical water. God can always provide physical water. Therefore, they thirsted for the Lord himself, and their spiritual thirst was quenched. In the Lord's Supper, true believers see more than physical bread and wine. They see spiritual food and spiritual drink, just as true believers did in the wilderness. Remember what I said at the beginning, Old Testament believers partook of the same spiritual nourishment as we do, even though Christ had not yet come in the flesh and died on the cross, because the spiritual nourishment is eternal life through faith in the promised Messiah. I want you to notice in 1 Corinthians 10, as we close now, notice that the context of 1 Corinthians 10 is the Lord's Supper. So look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The rock that was struck was Christ. This is my body which is broken for you. In your place, 
broken instead of you. If I did not suffer and die for you, then you would suffer and die forever because that's what your sins deserve. But I don't want that for you. So I was struck instead of you. The bread and wine in the Lord's Supper are sacred symbols of Christ's broken body. They're designed for spiritual nourishment, not bodily nourishment. Spiritual food, spiritual drink. And all the Lord asks of us is that we hunger and thirst for him. That our souls are hungry and thirsty for him, the living God. For him, the crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we tell him in our hearts, I want you more than anything else. That's communion. And through those sacred symbols, we have a close communion with the Lord. And we are spiritually nourished. We fellowship with him in a spiritual yet real way. There's nothing more real than that. And we walk away with spiritual refreshment, the living water from the living bread. Pray the Lord makes that happen for all of us today in his name. Amen. Let's stand for prayer.